Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. And in this episode, I'll be answering another question that many newcomers to Splitsville have. What is a guardian ad litem? So let's dive in. So today we're here with Holly Bennett to talk about a guardian ad litem and what their role is in a contested custody case. So Holly, we really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you, Lee. I'm so glad to be here. Well, Holly, I have had many cases that you've been involved in, and you're incredibly experienced as a guardian ad litem. And when we're doing this work in contested custody cases, we all know what a guardian does, but the general public does not have a good understanding of what role a guardian ad litem plays in a custody case. So can you tell us how you become involved in a contested custody case and then talk about what your responsibilities are, what your role is in a custody case? Sure. Let me answer that for you. A guardian becomes involved in a case through the court. The judge who is here at the temporary hearing is hearing your case. If he does, he or she does not feel like they are going to be fully informed regarding the facts of the case, then the court oftentimes will appoint a guardian ad litem at that temporary hearing. Sometimes attorneys will, in advance of that, agree on a guardian that they would like to be involved in the case. And if not, then the court, the judge who hears the case will appoint me. A guardian's role is pretty targeted. As I said earlier, when a judge doesn't feel like he's going to be fully informed about the facts of the case and there's children involved, that's the whole point of a guardian ad litem. Our primary role is to advocate for the best interest of the children or child. And so the way that we do that is by conducting a fair, a balanced and impartial investigation of the case. We collect information, evidence in the case that we can share with the court at a final hearing if necessary. We go about collecting that information in a variety of ways. It primarily is done, a lot of it is done through interviews with the parties, interviews with the children, making home visits, viewing medical records reviewing school records, talking with teachers. There's just a whole host. I mean, we don't have really a whole lot of parameters on, unless the judge imposes them, on on what evidence that we feel like we need to pursue or seek. That's kind of an overview. Right. And a guardian ad litem, it does not really work for either party or either attorney. It doesn't matter who recommends uh, them. I mean, they are not a tool of either side. No, we do not represent 
one parent or the other. Our responsibility is to advocate for the best interest of the child. When I say a fair, balanced, and impartial investigation, that's a part of the statute. So we are not, one side or the other, are we advocating for. We're advocating solely for the best interest of the child. We are neutral in regards to the parties themselves. We are often paid by both parties. Generally, the court will, when a guardian is appointed, will at the beginning indicate who is going to be responsible for what payment, but the court directs that. And generally speaking, this isn't always the case because the court has full discretion to do what it wants to do, but generally speaking, the parties split the costs that are associated with a guardian's involvement. And that brings up an interesting point because the guardians are officers of the court. They're serving at the the pleasure of the court who appoints them. They are not paid by the court or by any agency. So unfortunately, they're not court employees. That, so That is absolutely correct. We are officers of the court, but we are not funded by the court. The cases that we are involved in are private action cases that are brought by one party or the other themselves, and it's litigated in court. And just as each party, generally speaking, has their own respective attorneys that they pay for. I'm not an attorney. I'm a social worker. But if again, if the court feels like the court's not going to be informed of the facts of the case and they feel like the conflict is so significant that the child needs some protection or advocacy throughout the court proceedings, then the court appoints a guardian. But it's the party's responsibility to provide the payment for the guardian services. So what states do you serve as a guardian ad litem in? Just South Carolina. I am a social worker in South Carolina, and my involvement has been 100% in South Carolina cases. Okay. And South Carolina has a guardian ad litem statute, which you mentioned. Yes. So there's actually laws that you know the legislature passed that control the role of the guardian ad litem in cases, and not every state has that. South Carolina does. One of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to go back to was you said private action. So you're talking, we're specifically in this podcast talking about private action attorneys. And this is different than the role of a guardian ad litem appointed in a Department of Social Services DSS investigation. Lee, that is such a great distinction. And I often get that question because there are really two different types of guardian ad litems. There are guardian ad litems that work solely, they're volunteer, that work solely on cases that are involved with the Department of Social Services, children who have been removed from care of their parents or their their guardians for abuse or neglect. And when they are removed from care, they are appointed a volunteer guardian ad litem who follows them throughout the course of their involvement with the Department of Social Services. And like private guardian ad litems, they too have a role and responsibility for advocating for the best interest of the child and also conducting an investigation on behalf of that child so that they too can report back to the court what they believe is in the best interest of the child. Now, when you're talking about the best interest of the child, 
What does that mean? I mean, it's it's a phrase that's used a lot, but when you're investigating it as a guardian ad litem, what are you trying to actually figure out when you're doing this investigation? Well, when parties come into court with competing interests, there's generally two sides of a story. And oftentimes parents are clamoring for, I hate to use the word possession, but oftentimes it feels like possession of the child. And with possession or custody of the child, of course, comes financial issues that involve the child. So trying to weed through the competing interest of parties, because what's in one person's best interest, one party's best interest or another person's best interest very well may not be in a child's best interest. So looking at all the different factors that could be potentially involved in a case, finding out, trying to determine what parent, is there a predominant parent who's been engaged and involved and understands and knows the child's schedule. And oftentimes in cases you do, you find one parent that may be more of a primary parent than the other parent, but both parents bring something to that parenting relationship that enhances and furthers a child's appropriate development. So being able to kind of sift through the family dynamics and understand how those family dynamics affect and impact that child's healthy growth and development. The end goal and the best interest of that child is to further that healthy growth and development and figuring out how that can be done when parents are separating and divorcing. So when we're in private action lawsuits and and parties are disagreeing about who needs to have custody of the children, sometimes they raise pretty serious allegations about the other person. And generally, one of the reasons that the court often will bring somebody in is to have someone do an investigation into those allegations outside of the courtroom. So talk about some of those special sort of circumstances where you play a role by really sort of being a detective about these various kinds of accusations that one parent may levy against another. Right. There are always, when parents go into court, the name of the game is to sling as much mud at the other party as possible to gain, to posture and to gain to gain the ultimate goal, whatever that might be for them. And so, yeah, oftentimes parties make allegations. Sometimes there's little pieces of truth to allegations that are made, but they'll take a little piece of truth and build a mountain around it and make it more significant than it really is. So a guardian's involvement is going to take a look at each allegation that is laid out in their complaint and investigate each one of those, the validity of it. Sometimes parties will make, you know, allegations that, you know, the other side uses alcohol excessively and or drugs excessively or that they're never home or that, you know, they're they're always at their parents' home and never involved in really parenting matters. They've never attended doctor's visits or they don't participate in school functions. And so my role or the role of a guardian ad litem is to take each one of those investigations, 
take a look at it and either support it or determine that it's not a valid allegation. And again, that's done through a myriad of ways. If you, For example, if you have a parent saying, you know, that the mother has never attended one doctor's appointment, never attended an IEP meeting for the child, doesn't participate in any of the school functions, and the, the mother is saying, yes, I've done all of that, then a guardian's going to go into a case and she's going to review the medical records. Um, the medical records are going to reveal whether who brought the child to the doctor's appointments. IEP meetings have a list of everybody who participates in the IEP meetings because they have to sign. So we're going to get those IEP records. We're going to talk with the teacher and find out if the parent has been participating in parent-teacher conferences or is available, easily available by email or telephone calls. So there's just a whole host of avenues that a guardian can pursue to determine the validity or the authenticity of an allegation. Now, one thing just to back up, we are talking about contested custody cases where a court appoints a guardian ad litem. And those are the cases more where you're going to see the parents slinging mud at the other one. The parents that aren't trying to really undermine the other person as a parent those cases don't require the appointment of a guardian ad litem and you don't typically see those kind of allegations. They may have some difference of opinion about schedules or some things like that, but they're not, it's not the same level of disagreement that we're talking about with a guardian ad litem. That's correct, Lee. I mean, if parents are separating and divorcing and they are both um, have some emotional maturity to them, or there's not a lot of conflict, they've both been involved in the parenting of their children, and they're both united in their efforts. There may be some conflict surrounding minor issues, but don't necessarily involve the children. Then there's no reason for a guardian ad litem. The whole purpose for the appointment of a guardian is when there is high conflict involved in a case. There is significant allegations involved in a case. Often those allegations involve the child or children. And again, the court doesn't feel like it's going to really understand with the plaintiffs putting information up and the defendant putting information up. That's always two sides to a story. And the court doesn't feel like it's really going to get a comprehensive view of what's occurring and that the children are being caught in the middle of that conflict, then the court's going to want a guardian involved. For those those parties who are able to kind of navigate some of this, yeah, there may be some conflict, but it's not really child-focused, and it's things that are involving marital, you know, the separation of marital assets and those types of things. There's no point in having a guardian involved in those cases. Now, when you were talking about your investigation, you get a court order that gives you permission, that allows you to go in straight to the source and get information. So let's talk about this because you actually have an order that really kind of supersedes HIPAA. I mean, you don't need a parent's permission to go in and get their medical records. You have a court order that allows you to talk to their physicians and, and get those records. That's correct. The court will either draft themselves or oftentimes attorneys already have a very 
comprehensive standard guardian ad litem order that the judge will will sign that does provide great leeway. No, I don't I do not generally need a parent's signature for me to secure their medical records or the medical records of a child. The court order is HIPAA compliant. It allows me information that I can pull from physicians, counselors, law enforcement, juvenile justice, really just about any agency that has been involved with the family or the children, the ability to secure their records. The one area that I do not have the ability and I do have to have the party's consent and signature on a release of information is when there has been substance abuse. If the parties have been received treatment inpatient or outpatient, it's a higher level of, of protection that is provided to them. So in those cases, I do. But oftentimes the court will order them, even at that temporary hearing, will order the parties to sign any releases of information that's required or requested by the guardian ad litem. So there's not really much of a way for parties to kind of duck my ability to secure the information that I need to conduct the investigation that I'm conducting on behalf of the court. Now, when parties are talking about a guardian ad litem, when you think about a guardian in the layman's terms, people appoint a guardian for a child or someone goes to seek guardianship of a child. You know, often I have people that think that the other side is seeking to have somebody else take care of the child during the pendency of the litigation. And, you know, I guess that makes sense when you you think about being outside the legal system, but the guardian ad litem does not ever take physical care of the children away from their parent. When you're with the children, generally the other parent is there or they've brought them to a meeting that you're going to have with them, but you're not becoming a caretaker for the children. That is absolutely correct. I've already raised three children. I'm not interested in raising additional children, and most guardians aren't. But that is a very good distinction because you hear about, oh, I'm the guardian for my niece, or I'm the guardian for... So that is a very good distinction. And Lee, you said this earlier about, you know, we understand about guardian ad litems, but the general public does not. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because we even say the word guardian ad litem really quickly. And most people, when they call me, will they'll say, hey, the judge appointed me a guardian ad litem, or they'll, you know, pronounce it in a very different way. But this is a guard, it's actually three words. It's guardian and then ad, A-D. And then litem, L-I-T-E-M. So a guardian ad litem is very different than a guardian who is has legal responsibilities for the child that, of which they have guardianship. And you don't make decisions about the child either in this role. You That's, may make recommendations ad- to the parties or to the party's attorneys about something based on your investigation that you feel that somebody needs to step up to the plate and do or take care of, but you don't actually have the power to order one parent to do anything. No. And actually, I am prohibited from making a recommendation regarding custody of a child. Again, my role and responsibility 
is fact-finding and evidence-finding to present to the court so that the court will be more fully informed when the court wants to make a decision. Now, the statute does allow me to make recommendations regarding, actually, the way the statute reads is that I have the ability to make specific and clear suggestions when necessary. So not just any time. It needs to be a necessary situation for evaluation, services, and treatment for children and the children's family. So that's a very targeted responsibility. I am not making decisions about parenting time schedules. You know, it was Mother's Day and your husband didn't allow you to have the child on Mother's Day. And, you know, you want to call up and say, hey, can you help this out? Or you want the child next weekend because your parents are coming into town. Oftentimes, it's easy for parties to think that that guardian ad litems are kind of the tiebreaker in these disputes as they travel through their case. And that's not the case. Even attorneys sometimes want to use guardians to make decisions about you know, what's going to happen next weekend or working out some parenting plan. Now, we can make, if there's something that's going on in a case and a guardian, after conducting her investigation and talking with the children and there's things that are very important for the child or the children, the guardian can make suggestions based on that information and provide that information to both attorneys or both parties. But again, we are impartial. So we're not going to work with one side or work with the other side. If we're providing information, that information goes both ways. It's not just to one attorney or another attorney. So we're talking about recommendations while you're doing your investigation as you're doing it. But you do point out that in court, you can only make a recommendation in an actual trial to a judge if the judge asks you. That is correct. And oftentimes when a guardian writes their report, a guardian will make separate recommendations in a separate document that's sealed that can be available to the court should the court inquire about it. Sometimes the court does want to know what the guardian's position is, and oftentimes the court doesn't. And oftentimes if the attorneys have done a great job in in arguing their case, and the guardian has done a good job in collecting information for the court, then oftentimes the court doesn't need a guardian to specifically stay. The attorney, I mean, the judge can make up his or her own mind about what they believe is in the child's best interest. Right. And that's an important thing to make sure that if, if you go to a full hearing, or trial on custody, the guardian ad litem is a party. You actually sit in the courtroom, you can call witnesses, you can introduce documentation, and you can question the other witnesses and the parties. You are literally like a third attorney or a third party in the rule on behalf of the child to make sure that all the questions get asked and answered that you as the guardian feel like need to be presented. So you're actually in an evidentiary role if it goes to court. That is absolutely correct. We are participants in that case until the case reaches a conclusion. Either the parties have 
found an agreement amongst themselves. They have gone through mediation and were able to reach an agreement through mediation or it's gone to trial. But until the court closes the case, either through agreement and putting an agreement on the record or going to trial, then that guardian ad litem's involvement persists until that time. Unless the court relieves a guardian in advance of that for some reason from their responsibilities. And also, one of the important things to know is that a guardian doesn't try to mediate the custody with the parties. Like, you know, the guardian doesn't, like you said, you're not only not making decisions about what's going on with a weekend or a particular schedule, but you're not also by the statute not allowed to sit down with the parties and try to help them figure it out because that can make you lose the role of the neutrality. So sometimes that's that a guardian's goal work. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, we're actually statutorily prohibited from participating in mediation. The mediation process itself, we can participate in if both parties agree. But as far as trying to work with the parties to help them figure out some type of an agreement, we are prohibited from doing. Now, I will tell you, Lee, that as a guardian, I often will encourage both parents or both parties to communicate, to talk, and to try to figure this out. Because going to trial is almost never in the best interest of a child. When parties walk out of a one, two, three, five-day trial where both sides have just really kind of hammered away at one another, it creates such damage in that their ability to co-parent with one another that it's almost irreparable. So I do, I don't mediate, but I do always strongly encourage families in which I have been appointed as the guardian to try to figure it out as hard as that might be and not as perfect as you might want it. But I always encourage parents to work their hardest in finding their own resolutions, because at the end of the day, I'm not going to know their child the way they do. You're not going to know their child the way that they do. And a judge, after hearing a few days of testimony, is not going to know their child the way that they do. They are the ones that are in the perfect position to make decisions regarding the best interest of their child. So I always strongly advocate for families to try to find solutions. And another thing is, if the parties do reach an agreement, the guardian has to affirm or agree to, I mean, accept the terms of the agreement on behalf of the child. You have to, we call it sign off on it. The guardian has to sign off on it. But you can't really circumvent the guardian's work by, yes, avoiding court, but also avoiding the guardian because you you at least have a role in reading what the final suggested agreement of the parents is and saying whether or not you think it's lacking in any way. That's absolutely true. The court is going to inquire with the guardian. If the guardian has read the agreement and if the guardian is in agreement with the terms of the agreement. So, and they're generally speaking, oftentimes when when parents have worked together to create an agreement, even if I think that there would probably be a better way to do it. Oftentimes, guardians will agree with that agreement, even if they don't think it's perfect. But 
there are certain situations where the health, safety, and well-being of a child might not be paramount in that agreement. And a guardian might not agree with it. Now, when that happens and you go before the court and the court says, you know, Madam Guardian, do you agree with the terms of this agreement? I may say, no, I don't. And I'll have to state the positions why. And the court may continue to affirm the agreement that they've reached, or the court may schedule another hearing for testimony to, to, testimony to be provided in that case. But Yes, a guardian must also be in agreement with whatever terms that the parties have reached amongst one another. And just before we sort of close out, I was also thinking it might be helpful for people to know what sort of training and what you have to go through to actually be certified and be able to be appointed as a guardian ad litem, because it's not just you know, a task that people just wake up one day and say, oh, I want to do this. So let's talk a little bit about what you've had to do to be put in a position to be given this this responsibility by the court. Certainly. And Lee, you're going to have to, I did this so many years ago that um, some things may have changed, but generally speaking, you do have to have a college education. You have to participate in some pretty extensive guardian ad litem training It's a multi-day training session. Annually, you have to do an annual eight hours worth of training. You have to view from start to finish three merits hearings or final hearings, final merits hearings where you're listening to testimony. And that can be very difficult because sometimes you get into a trial and the parties reach an agreement in the middle of a trial. So then you kind of have to start all over. That can't count as one of your three. So there, there are some pretty rigorous requirements in order to be a guardian. And then guardians, generally speaking, who practice, who are actively practicing, in addition to that one day annually of training that they do, they often will participate in other training, trainings about substance abuse, trainings about mental health trainings about services that are provided in their communities. They need to be pretty well connected within their communities so that they can make referrals for services if they feel like it's needed. And I think it's important for litigants to understand the dedication that guardians have to their role, because as a guardian, you can often really piss off one parent or the other in your role. I know most People are very respectful, but this is, you know, this concerns people's children and sometimes they don't like what they're hearing. But I think it's important for people to know the work you have to go through to be appointed and the work you have to to go through to continue to do this. You guys don't take it lightly. No, guardians who actively practice are committed to their responsibilities to the court and to their ward. They have a heart for this. It is not an easy job. Generally speaking, one side or the other is going to probably take issue with a guardian. And it is full of conflict and stress and anxiety for a guardian because they want to do what's in the best interest of the child. And they want to see that happen. But again, there's limitations to that. But guardians do, they have a heart for doing what's right in regards to providing accurate, clear information to the courts and to the parties 
so that good choices and good decisions can be made in regards to the children that are involved in that case. I know the attorneys out there really appreciate the work that guardians do, even if the litigants aren't always as sure because, you know, again, they are being put under a microscope. But what would you, of all the things we've talked about, can you think of anything else that you just would love for somebody who's listening to this podcast to know about guardian ad litems and their role, questions that other people have asked you that maybe I've missed? No, you know, just in terms of what you could expect from a guardian ad litem, when a guardian is appointed to your case and you walk out of that temporary hearing, the attorneys will provide the court order and the court file to the guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem is going to review it. And then generally speaking, the guardian is going to reach out to you either by email or phone and will schedule a time to either make a home visit or to have you come into the office individually. They're not going to bring you in together and collect, begin collecting information, getting information from you about the history of your case and getting information from the other party about the history of the case. And then the the guardian's going to want to meet with the child or the children and interview them. And then we'll make a determination from that point what other information they need to collect and who else they need to interview. But parties should be thinking about who they want this guardian to interview. What witnesses do they feel like is important? What information do they feel like will be important for the guardian to review? So beginning to collect that information, getting those telephone numbers, kind of understanding and being able to provide that information to a guardian is in particular about the history of the case in a way that's concise, but meaningful and summative. You you don't want to spend three days going through the entire history of a marriage, but you do want, you know, kind of a a basic understanding of, of what's brought them to this current litigation. So that would be just the only other piece of information is just what to expect really from the guardian once they have received that appointment. Holly, I know you also serve as a, do home studies and service guardian in adoption cases as well. And you have your own business where you provide those services. So even though people don't get to pick their own guardians, I do want them to know where they can find more information about you and, you know, the roles the guardian and in plays. You have a website. Can you tell everyone where that website is, where to find you? I do. My website is palmettosocialwork.com. And palmetto, like the tree, social work, not plural, dot com. And you can find information about when you're involved in a, a private action child custody case. You can find information if you're interested in adopting, about adopting, and you can provide information about the collaborative process. So if you're involved in, if you know you're going to be separating, you're you're trying to work this out respectfully and together, and you don't really want to go duking it out in court, there's information about the collaborative process as well on my website. And all of it, good to check out. If anybody's listening and and talking about what a guardian ad litem does, it's, it's probably put a little bit of fear in people that they even want to be in this process. So if you're uh, listening to this podcast before you've gone to court and, and had a guardian ad litem involved, definitely go to all of the collaborative law websites and get as much information on that as possible because Holly makes a very good point. Most attorneys echo it too, that uh, contested trials and litigations do more damage to children than 
any custodial physical custody arrangement under the sun can do for a child. Just the conflict in and of itself is amazingly impactful and and quite destructive on children and much, much more difficult for them than getting, you know, one or two more overnights with, with the other parent will ever do. So if you can avoid the process altogether, certainly worth exploring. You're absolutely correct, Lee. Well, Holly, we just so much appreciate you for this time. I I feel like you've answered a lot of questions and have been very thorough about it. And we do appreciate your work and hope to have you come again and and maybe talk a little bit more about what role you play when you're doing a collaborative case as opposed to a contested custody case. I would be honored, Lee. Thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity to kind of talk with you guys today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. So there you have it, another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here, so I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully it is full of helpful people, valuable resources, and sound advice, if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.